I'm Brett Fish, and this is Out of the Fishbowl. In episode two, and go back and listen if you missed it, we spoke about representation and diversity, the importance of being able to see people like you in different spaces, which is super important, but that is just the start. Because you can have a group that is filled with women or people of color and so on, but if all the decisions are still being made by only men or only white people, then it's basically just ends up being window dressing, which probably leads to just more frustration and tension. And I read this helpful quote by Andres Tapia, diversity is the mix, inclusion is making the mix work. And the end goal, I think, is actually belonging. But in places and spaces where that has been lacking, sometimes it's going to take us a bit of a journey to get there. And so diversity and representation, which move to inclusion and hopefully land at a place where everyone feels like they belong. And I think this can be a tricky thing for those of us who have always felt like we belonged to understand or even try to understand because we haven't experienced what it's like to have to fight to have your presence acknowledged or your voice heard. And so we especially need to lean deeply once again into curiosity so that we can hopefully arrive at a place that is better for everyone. And that may take a bit of mental gymnastics for us, which is why I have chosen to call this one Episode 6, Coffee Snobs and Gourmet Pizza. So, wait a second. What does inclusion have to do with being a coffee snob or enjoying gourmet pizza? Let's find out. Now, if you are old like me, you will remember a series called Friends, and I actually spoke to one of my hockey friends the other day, and he said his children are watching it, so maybe Friends will remain a cultural phenomenon or kind of refine itself. But whether you've seen the episode or not, there's, there's one episode that stands out for me, and it was an episode about money, in a sense. And so you had three of the friends, Chandler, Monica, and Ross, who had really well-paying jobs. And then you had Joey, Phoebe, and Rachel. Rachel at the time was a waitress at the coffee shop. Joey was a struggling actor. And Phoebe was a street musician who did not have kind of a regular stream of income. And so there was a whole episode that was kind of focused on this idea of how the money disparity played out in their friendship group. So they went to a restaurant and... Those who were not making a lot of money ordered salads and glasses of water and kind of the smallest things on the menu. And it was quite an expensive restaurant. And so the others were ordering big foods and bottles of wine and dessert and all that kind of thing. And they get to the end of the meal. And I think it's Ross says, cool, let's split the bill. And they split the bill and hand it out. And you just see the faces of Joey, Phoebe and Rachel like that's a whole month's worth of money gone in a meal. And so one of the questions that if you have a friendship group that has that kind of disparity in it is the venue. And another one is, is maybe kind of the money that you spend on things. Like I 
had a similar situation with some of my friends. And so I'm in a situation where I'm living off a part-time income. And so I am doing okay, but I, I don't have kind of gourmet pizza money. And there's been a few occasions of of being at a friend's house for board games or for a movie night or whatever. And they are like, oh, let's just order from this place. And there's a sense of kind of like a shame aspect or an embarrassment aspect of of not wanting to speak up and say, oh, actually, I can't really afford it. And so usually it's just a case of ah, smile and nod and I will just get creative with budget around things that I can control. And then another another kind of space that I move in or group of friends that I have, I would call the coffee snobs. And so this idea of of people that that will spend 40, 50 bucks on coffee three times a day maybe or every day or whatever it is and not necessarily realizing that there are other people that move in their circles that, that can't spend that kind of money. And so there's a money aspect to it, but there's also a, a social standing side of it. So maybe they come around to your house and look down on you because you only have Jacobs, just like I might look down on someone because they only have free coffee or whatever it is. Like we all have our levels of coffee snobbery perhaps. And, oh, you're not doing a air over water press sidekick spinazio. I don't know what the latest coffee thing is, but – but the question related to these things are how might our choices invite exclusion? And so it's not intentional. Nobody in that situation invites their friends to this thing with the idea of catching them out because you know that they don't have enough money. Let's go order these expensive things and split the bill. But it's usually more a case of unthinking, of, of not considering that not everyone in this group is equal. And do we take the time to consider who is in the room? And the answer is not just paying for it because you could be understanding that some people in the room can't afford more expensive things and so you could offer to pay for it. But then that sometimes can create a power kind of dynamic or some level of shame. It's like, oh, I always have to be paid for by you. I've always and, – and that sense of how that can affect the relationship where, where you are seen as dependent on them as opposed to maybe the group making different choices about where they go and what they do. And it goes back to the episode that I, I did on critical thinking, where it's about are we asking the right questions? Are we, are we being intentional about understanding the spaces we're in, the people we're with? Do we, do we know that for some people money is a bigger deal than for other people? Other people have like entertainment money to throw around. I remember a number of years ago, we were doing a kind of a money Bible course um, with a group of people. And, and one of the things that it asked was for everyone to draw up their budget. And it's quite, it's quite an intense, uh, intense, what's the word, vulnerable space because people don't, we don't like talking about money. It's become this thing we can't talk about because of the shame or the embarrassment or things like that. But, but in this course, it invited you to dive deep. The book was called Free that we were discovering. And I think it was only on week two the idea is that you share your budget with everyone in the room. And what came out in, in the sharing of budgets is that for one family, for one couple, their entertainment budget was more, so their coffees and their pizzas and their going out to restaurants and stuff was more than one of the other person had to live on for the whole month. Like their entire budget 
was smaller than somebody else's entertainment budget. And so obviously when you're making decisions, when you're having meals, when you're inviting people to weekends away or to holidays, things like that, like if you're not understanding that people are coming from different spaces, then it is going to cause some kind of a mess at some space. So are we asking the right questions? Are we, are we interrogating the spaces we're in, the people we're in? And trying to, like one of the ways we can solve this is through creativity. So we don't have to go to an expensive restaurant to hang out as friends. Maybe that's something we can do by ourselves. Maybe as friends we can go and have a walk on the beach. Or maybe we can invite people around and host something at our house or whatever. And so how creative are we getting about the ways that we spend time with people? And are we aware? A lot of, I think a lot of stuff that goes down is just because we don't think about it. And when we, if we are trying to, other episodes I've spoken about diversity and inclusion, like we're trying to get different people together in our friendship group. We don't want to have a friendship group of people that are at the same economic level of us, the same race group, the same thinking and beliefs, we, we wanting to build diverse communities. And if we're doing that, we have to be aware that different people have different realities. And so how do we, how do we interact in ways that are healthy, in ways that are life-giving to everyone in the group? That's not making some people feel bad because they're depending on other people all the time or making other people feel like they have to put out more money or more whatever. Like how do we get creative in terms of gathering together in a way that brings life to everyone? And if that seems uncomfortable, if that seems confusing, maybe we just need to have a conversation about it because, like, just name it. And the reality is people are earning different salaries. The reality is people are living in different spaces. Some people rely on public transport. Some people have their own car. Let's talk about it. If we're friends, if we're trying to discover how to do community together, let's not be embarrassed about naming something that if we don't name it could cause embarrassment and conflict and irritation or frustration or bitterness or any of these other things like let's just be honest let's start speaking to each other i think this relates to something that i heard from another good friend of mine she was in a in a church where she was one of she was a minority as a black person in a church which is just wild in south africa where eight percent of people are white in the country but it was a largely white church and she was part of a midweek meeting or gathering and she was the only black person in the group. And she introduced me to this concept that she called the better black. And there was this sense of when she stepped into that space in terms of the music she listened to, the clothes she wore, the language or the way that she spoke, there was a sense of needing to fit in, of, of being good enough. And so within that group, you could say, is there inclusion? Yes. She was welcome. She was part of the group. Is there belonging? And and to answer that, you'd say maybe, but as who? Like if she had to be this thing in inverted commas, the better black, to fit in with the group, if she had to pretend to like the music they liked, if she had to be watching the shows they liked, if it wasn't okay for her to just be herself with her fashion, with her tastes, with her the way that she spoke, then there's not a sense of belonging. There's a sense of needing to adapt and fit in to be with the group. And so just that idea, that concept of the better black just really made me aware of, of spaces where I've been, where I might have propagated some of that. And especially it's in any group where there's a minority person. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't have to be a race thing. It doesn't have to be an age thing. It could be a 
person with disability. It could be someone who is LGQTBI, somebody that that feels like, or somebody that is, I guess, a minority in the group. Like, are we aware of who we are, of how we do things, of the language we use, of the expectation we put on people? Do does everybody? feel welcome? Does everybody feel included? Does everyone feel like they belong in the group that we're in? Whether that is in a work situation, whether that is in a hockey space. I play hockey and our team used to be majority white and I invited a friend of color into the team and needed to be aware that there were certain experiences that he had on the field, especially with other teams, that were very different to the experiences that I was having. And just inviting him as one person of color into an all-white team, thankfully it's a little bit different now, but just understanding that there's a risk there, there's a cost there, there's a different experience of it for him than there was for me. And for me, as as the person in the majority, it was on me to actually do the work and try and understand and chat to him and try and figure out what how I needed to be to make the space feel more like a place where he could belong. And and so are we asking those kind of questions in, in spaces where there are minorities around us? Another space where inclusion has been something that I've thought about a lot is in meetings where there's a Q&A. And so maybe you have a speaker or you have a panel and then there's a Q&A. If you are ever in these spaces, look at the first five people who go to the mic. And historically, what I've seen in most spaces that I'm in, especially in South Africa, typically the majority, if not all, of the first five people to the mic will be old white men. And a lot of the time they'll be making statements, not asking questions. And a couple of years ago, I did a course called LUT, Leadership in Urban Theology. And I can't remember why I did this, but at the beginning, this was obviously stuff I was being challenged about in things that I was reading. I was reading a lot of stuff about race and about justice. And so one of the things that I was challenged about was privilege and how loud my voice is. And so I made it a personal, private challenge. This wasn't anything I told anyone in the group, I don't think. But we were in a group of 12 people of whom four of us were white and three were women. And so I made it a personal decision that I'm not going to speak in the room unless a person of color or a woman has spoken before me. And that might not sound like a big deal. But I know that if I hadn't made that decision and by observing the other white people in the room, I would have just likely spoken all the time. And sometimes it was hard because we're talking about something and I've got an opinion and I feel like my opinion is so valuable and everyone has to hear my opinion on this because it's so important. And if you don't hear my opinion, oh, this thing is... And just being able to be quiet and sometimes not speak at all or other times just wait till the end and let people of color, let women speak first, realizing, oh, actually other people have had this thought as well or the stuff that other people have been saying is so much more valuable than the silly thing that I wanted to say. Not that that's always the case, but one of the biggest realizations I had during that year was that what I have to say is not the most important And I don't know, I'd love to say I've arrived there and I fully believe that and that's my day-to-day existence. But there's still something in me most of the time that makes me think that what I think is more important than other people. And so that constantly is an area that I'm working on. 
But I want to encourage you. That was an incredible challenge for me because it taught me so much in terms of observing myself, in terms of realizing when I want to speak, how often I want to speak, how valuable I think my voice is. And because every time I was quiet, it created a space, hopefully, for another person of color to speak or for another woman to speak. It helped to break down the old white menness of speaking in the group. And again, I'm not saying that old white men don't have things to say that are valuable, but old white men have been saying all the things for all the time. And so it is time for us to create spaces for people of color and women to speak. There's so much value in things that won't, we won't hear if we only let five old white men get to the mic at the Q&A. When it comes to exclusion, the question is, who is missing? So when you're planning things, when you're making decisions, who will help us think about the necessary things? If there are minorities in the group, are their voices being represented so that their issues and the way that the things we're creating relate to them can be thought of, can be brought up, can be perceived? A little example, it might be a lot more dangerous for someone to head home to a township at 11 p.m. than the suburbs. So if we're creating an event that finishes at 11 p.m. and we know that people coming to the event have public transport that are heading to townships and me and my personal transport, I'm heading home to the suburbs, then there are things that I need to start thinking about. And so the way we plan activities, the way we work together as groups, all of this will start to be shaped as, as soon as we start thinking about these things of inclusion exclusion, belonging. I remember on Facebook, and I don't spend a lot of time there anymore, but in a couple of years ago, this, this invitation came through, and it was something like women teaching Sunday school. I don't even know why that was a topic. But, but the, the five photos that were linked to this conference that was happening were literally five old white men. The topic was about women, and the experts in that field were five white men. And I think about that every time I see an all-white panel in South Africa. And typically what I do, and I get into lots of trouble for this, it's happened in church spaces, it's happened in kind of other journalism and other spaces. There's a panel in South Africa, there's five people and they're all white. I jump into the comment section and I simply type in, I see white people. And this is kind of like my little humorous nod to the sixth sense. I see dead people. And it's amazing how four words, I see white people, can trigger conflict and anger and bitterness and deniability and you know, people just get so hectic and I've lost friendships or I've had friendships ruined because I challenged them about the whiteness of a panel or the whiteness about a group of people in the room. And the reason that is significant is because you have 75% or more of the population if it's an all-white panel, then it means you've got 92% of the population not being represented on this thing that you have supposedly got experts for. And so there's a sense that you can have majority of people in the country could come to this thing and not see anybody that looks like them speaking as an expert on this topic. What do you think about that? You have to think, oh, there's nobody like me that is an expert or various thoughts. And so we need to be a lot better about asking the questions. And if, if we look and we go, oh, well, we, we asked other people and they couldn't do it or there was no one to ask, it's probably because we've been running these things with all white people on the panels. And I'm just using race as an example because the same thing happens with women. The same thing happens in a variety of different areas. And 
It's not about tokenism. It's about how do we create a voice that represents the majority of the people? How do we how do we create spaces where people are going to really get value from what is happening? I think often there's there's a sense of entitlement that comes of of who gets to speak and who doesn't get to speak. I think often it's a, a sense of posture in those spaces. I remember when we were in the States, a friend of ours used to volunteer every year at a First Nations reserve. So kind of the American Indians had a reserve and she would go every year and and help out with them. And the one year, five different kind of missions teams, church teams came in and painted the hall. And so within five weeks, the same hall got painted five times because people came in with a posture of entitlement. We are coming in to help you. We are coming in to save the day. Look at us. We're so good. We're doing this thing. And they went into a space and they did the thing that they thought was valuable. They didn't consult the people that were there. And they ridiculously repeated the same thing five times. So it's a waste of materials. It wasn't meeting a need that was there. And so what is our posture when it comes to spaces of inclusion, exclusion, belonging. People with children. I mean, there's so many different areas. We could talk forever about about different areas. And so let kind of the concepts that I'm talking about, let the thoughts that I'm speaking about relate it to kind of the different situations you find yourself in. But if, if we are organizing a thing and we're inviting people with children, are we creating a space where the children can be looked after or where the children can feel included and part of what we're doing? And that can work both ways, I think. Um, if we have children in a space where, where they're not going to be conducive to what that space is about, there might be certain cases where we need to be thinking about having babysitters and not taking children into those spaces. I think there's probably questions on both sides as things are happening. How do we do this well? How do we do this so everyone feels included? How do we do this so that people can be invited? Are we inviting people to things without thinking that maybe they've got children that maybe need babysitters or maybe maybe need some help or whatever? What about people with disabilities? Are we, are we asking the question, who is here or maybe who can't get here? Or if, if they are here in the space, how is this not helpful for them? And to be honest, it, 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 can, be, it can feel a little overwhelming if, if you are not kind of in those spaces because, because there are so many different types of people. And so do we have to think through all of those lists of people? Like, is this working from a racial point of view? Is it working from a gender point of view? Is it working from people with disabilities point of view? And, and actually, because that is the world we live in, and because we're working in, generally working or living in groups or communities of people, we can start to understand those communities. And, and this stuff should start to become more natural for us. And for those of us that maybe don't have hindrances or don't have spaces where we felt excluded it is up to us to do more work to actually make places more inclusive more more welcoming feel more belonging to people that they haven't been feeling like that for and so what i'm finding is when i've got friends with people when i am friends with people who have disabilities then then they are helping me to understand how I can be better. And sometimes it is just about simple conversations. Like, help me understand, how can I make this work for you? Like, what, what would really make this feel like something where you belong? And so I think a lot of this inclusion stuff 
kind of gets resolved or gets figured out through conversation. And often we can be hesitant for conversation because we're scared of getting it wrong. We're scared of saying the wrong thing in the politically charged social media kind of environment that we have today. Saying the wrong thing can get you canceled quickly and all that kind of thing. But actually, if we are creating spaces for these conversations and actually really just trying to do things well, just trying to do things that include everyone – then it, it stops being, oh, a thing that we have to do and, and it stops being panic about what if we get this wrong. But but it comes out of a genuine space of how do we make this work for everyone? Because I think that question, how do I make this work for as many people as possible? I don't think too many of us are going to struggle with that. And so if we make that the heart of what we're doing, surely, surely we're not trying to create events where we exclude people. And And so if that's true then turning it around and going, how can we create an event that includes people becomes more of a natural question. It becomes a bit more work, yeah. But as we do that work more regularly, it becomes less work. It becomes easier. It becomes second nature. We start to think more naturally of the people that we haven't included. And so if you take something as simple as, as disability, like wheelchair parking lots, like over time, you realize that people that struggle with walking or can't walk far distances, you create spaces nearer to the thing so that they don't have to walk far distances. It's, it's an easy win. And so as we start to think of these things, we'll figure out the things that make them happen. Is everyone able to fully engage? And maybe a question that goes with that in our country is, has everyone eaten? So we might create an event and you've got people that are, are living in extreme poverty coming to the event and they are being so distracted by the fact that their stomachs are just are just growling, or that they haven't eaten for a day or two days. And we come, we fully eat and we don't even think about that stuff. And so we think, okay, we're creating this event. There are going to be some people here that are struggling with with even eating regular meals. How do we how do we work that into the budget? How do we how do we create something so that Everybody is able to fully engage. And so I read this quote, which I think is really helpful, that inclusion is intentional. It is about identifying and removing barriers so that everyone can participate to the best of their ability. That, that doesn't sound too difficult, does it? Let me read it again. Inclusion is intentional. It is about identifying and removing barriers so that everyone can participate to the best of their ability. That sums up this episode. When people belong, community starts to build. And so I want to link to episode two of season one was this episode called Divers slash Diverse, where there was this encouragement to open your mind, to open the voices that inform you, the spaces you're in, the people you hang out with, so that your groups and your knowledge and your information and even your entertainment can become more diverse so that you can gain the richness of what happens when different voices are invited into your space. And I want to encourage you that this is kind of the next step of that. It's about reading. It's about listening. It's about being humble and open to making mistakes and getting it wrong. And I think that's a big part of this, that, that generally when we're trying to include people, when we're trying to make people feel like they belong, if we make a mistake, if we get it wrong, I think they're going to be okay with that or they're going to have some grace for us in those spaces. But let us lean in a country, I hope this is going beyond South Africa, but particularly in South Africa, in a country as, as diverse and, and mixed as ours, let, let us focus on 
inclusion and diversity and then let us move towards belonging. Let us create spaces, friendship groups, communities where everybody that steps into them feels like they belong, feels like there is a space for them, that they are seen, that they are valued, that their voice is important. And that should be something that should be easy for all of us to do.